Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Bly Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Follow us on all social media at Bly Creative or Cultivate Labs both with a K. AJ Raphael is a singer-songwriter based in Los Angeles. His music career began in the early 2000s as part of the pioneering wave of Asian-American content creators, uploading his videos to YouTube and amassing millions of views and a global fan base. His 2011 independently produced album Red Roses made a splash on the iTunes chart and was sold out in retail stores at a time when the music industry was going through a paradigm shift toward independent artists. Since then, he's written music for film and TV and shown his talent on stage as an accomplished actor, dancer, and music director involved in musical theater productions of Tarzan and Mamma Mia!, He's also used his talent to advance numerous charity and philanthropic efforts and even host a podcast with his wife, Alyssa. In this conversation, AJ opens up about being uncomfortable for only being recognized for his YouTube success and how he finally accepted it as part of his journey. There are some points in my career where I was like, in the intro for my show can you not call me youtube sensation adrian Raphael? you know i want to be known as singer songwriter adrian Raphael. you know but recently to embrace that role says something different about your journey if you're a musician who's coming from the youtube space or from paving your own path because it's not like ex-american idol contestant adrian Raphael, which is on my wikipedia for some reason but i never was on that show that's a commentary on how people validate certain things even my aunties and things like that growing up like why don't you try it for the voice why don't you do american idol and stuff what i've had youtube videos that you know hit millions of views i'm like that to me is a feat in itself right so you know i'm very proud to be part of that og era of asian american youtubers also in this conversation we talk about the process behind writing for film and tv versus writing music for himself how music has helped his healing process, and how he utilizes it to help others. And we also hear the story of why I even named my son after him. You can find AJ on Instagram at AJRaphael and visit his website at AJRaphaelMusic.com. We are so excited to have you. Uh, For our listeners and people that don't know, AJ Raphael is actually a family friend. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's not get that's into right. the, story the story just story? yet. <laughs> I just wanted to like preface that because <laughs> I feel so comfortable with you. Also, you know, you're just all around dope guy and your humility levels are at a thousand. So I just wanted to start the interview saying that and I just feel so safe around you and comfortable. So this interview might be a little bit different from my normal like nerves. But before we even like go beyond and ask more questions, I always sort of start off with a tradition of asking our guests 
if they would like to call in any ancestors or loved ones who have transitioned on into the space, into the conversation to sort of ground us before we go on. Absolutely. As always, my dad who passed away in 99 is always with me. But when I talk about my journey and my music, it all stems from him. So, But I've also been thinking about my Auntie Vicky, my grandma, who I knew when I was young, my Mama Zenny. These people helped shape my love for music as well. So yeah, always thinking about them and, and definitely have them with me in spirit. I love that you bring up so many of your family support system and especially your dad. I know you've talked about him in previous interviews and he's such like a core foundation of who you are as an artist and musician. But can you just talk a little bit more about how growing up in a musical family affected you as a singer, songwriter and writing your own music? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my mom and dad were in choir together Um so I grew up around being, you know, around choirs and churches and stuff and, and singing. And my dad led a choir in Myrna Valley. And we were at church every different churches too, different denominations. So I learned a lot about different styles of music. And my dad was a very giving musician. So I know he didn't make a lot of money, but he wanted to do music for the music and not necessarily about like the religion or whatever denomination it was. So yeah, growing up around that environment helped foster like me and my sisters into really loving music as well. And the more community-based experience of music, which is like singing together in a group and things like that. And, you know, I remember one time my dad saying, I overheard him. I was just singing along to some CD or tape or something. And he's like, wow, AJ has a really good voice, you know. I'll always remember that because I didn't start singing solo like my own stuff until I was 14, 15. My dad had passed away when I was 10. So, you know, it took me that long. And even till now, I'm always like, I'm better behind an instrument. I'm better behind my music. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but that's why I love theater so much because it allows me to own my own voice and be proud of it. So yeah, all of these experiences have led me to the musician I am today and it's not until recent years where I have been like, cause it's always when you lose somebody, you're like, I wish I could have them back. And not that I don't wish that my dad was back, but I know that I wouldn't be the man I am today if I didn't lose him so young, you know? So having to balance what that has been like for me, especially now as a married man and, you know, hopefully will be a, a father soon. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff, thinking about those things. It's like, I wish he was here. And it's like, but, would I have been in the place I am today? Would I have, you know, touched millions around the world with my music? Would I have met Alyssa, my wife, you know, things like that. So yeah, that's just kind of brought me here. I've talked about this in other episodes, but my father also passed away fairly young. And I feel that too. Although he was the opposite. He told me I had a horrible voice <laughs> and I could not sing to stay with comedy and acting. Because oh my, thinking gosh. it was just not in our genes. Like, was he like kind of serious? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Okay, yeah. I yeah, had yeah. that moment on camera. I have that moment. Filipinos, man. But he was super supportive as far as like my writing, acting, and any other kind of art form. 
But I also understand that feeling of would I be the same artist I am today if he hadn't passed on or, or transitioned? But also realizing, even though we don't see them in the physical, I feel and believe they definitely are with us still spiritually and sort of guiding our paths and helping to guide that path and connecting us with certain folks and situations. Yeah. So I also wanted to acknowledge that with you and your father and I follow you on social media. So I see the posts around his transition anniversary, his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. That all happens in September too. So it's a very hard thing. It's like his birthday, the 10 days later is his death anniversary. 14 days after that is my LA wedding anniversary, which we got married in the church that he got married at and that he also had his funeral at. So that will be a heavy month this year, I foresee, but I will be on tour. That will be a very cool moment as well to know that I'm doing what I love to do. I'm doing what my dad loved to do, or he'd be proud of me doing as well. And when we keep on their, not just their memory, but I feel like their energy and tension with the things and the art that we create. Yes, absolutely. And even for people who don't make art, you know, when I talk to people about, you know, the parents' death and stuff, I always let them know that anytime you do think of them, you are making like a new memory with them. You know what I mean? So that keeps them alive in in that way when you are thinking about them in that moment with that new person in you know, or whatever the experience may be, that's still a memories that you can make with him. It, like it doesn't have to end, you know. Exactly. Because it's their influence. It's how they've shaped you as a man, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I also wanted to ask, for those that don't know, you attended Berkeley College of Music, which is one of the most prestigious music schools in the entire country. And after, you know, you already had this notoriety as a musician, a YouTuber. So why did you decide to pursue formal training? And what do you think the effect was on your artistry? Well, one of the things is that I feel like there's a lot of pressure for like young Filipino, like our first gen Filipino fam to be going to college. And a lot of our parents did actually go to like prestigious universities in the Philippines, like UP and shit like that. So I was like, I need to go to college. I was at RCC for like a year and I didn't get accepted. I was very bad in high school. I didn't get accepted into any colleges after high school or any universities, I guess. So I was at RCC and I attended a Berkeley summer camp, which they also held auditions as well. It was in Long Beach and I actually met my guitarist who's still with me now, Andrew Rim, there. Being at a school like that, and I auditioned, so it wasn't academia-based, you know what I mean? That was very important for me because, again, I was a bad student. So have it being audition-based, I was like, cool, this feels more like my route. I'm going to kill the audition and do it, which I did. And uh, I got in and I went to school in Boston, which was so different from Rhoda Valley. You know, taking the tea, you know, walking in the snow. I lived like 0.8 miles away from school, so it wasn't far enough to take the tea. I had to walk and you're walking in the snow and things like that. Anyway, that's environmental. But to answer your formal training question, and I still feel like this to this day, I felt like I went to school for like the network around it. And yes, of course, it put names to 
things that I already knew in music, which is very cool. So it taught me how to communicate with a band better, like a band that you never played with. You're just putting out numbers and things like that because you're learning those things in school. So that was a big help. But again, as you said, I was already doing YouTube videos by then. At school, I was literally being called into classes to speak about my YouTube and my MySpace numbers and music. You know what I mean? Because that was such a new thing at that time. And even like half of the teachers I spoke to, they're like, oh, aren't you scared that someone might steal your songs and things like that? And, you know, I didn't even get them copyrighted because you know, I was just putting stuff out there. Like that was the YouTube mentality is like, just put it out there, deal with the stuff later. If it gets big, that's cool. So anyway, I'm so grateful for that one year. I went for two semesters. I call it the two semester John Mayer program because he went to Berkeley for two semesters. He calls it that actually. It's like John Mayer two semester program. That's my journey there. And it's brought me a lot of very close friends. And to be able to say I went to Berkeley, like the fact that it's a question in this interview, it's very cool to bring up. But at the same token, I think that I still you know, would have pursued music even without the school of it all, you know? And I, I think that anyone who is a musician doesn't have to take that route to do it. I appreciate that response because it also validates folks who may not have the means or capacity to go to university and acknowledges that your journey is not always everyone's journey, right? Speaking of, you definitely had a journey that was different than most musicians being a pioneer of the YouTube MySpace era and my other question as far as like a follow-up to that is what inspired you to sort of take your music career into your own hands and become a YouTube creator versus like going the traditional route of just hounding the music industry I think early on I kind of embraced being like a quote-unquote YouTube star or whatever. I mean, there are some points in my career where I was like, in the intro for my show, can you not call me YouTube sensation Adrian Raphael? You know, I want to be known as singer songwriter Adrian Raphael. You know, but recently, to embrace that role says something different about your journey. If you're a musician who's coming from the YouTube space or from paving your own path, because it's not like ex American Idol contestant Adrian Raphael, which is on my Wikipedia for some reason but I never was on that show. That's a commentary on how I think people validate certain things. Even my aunties and things like that growing up, like, why don't you try it for The Voice? Why don't you do American Idol and stuff? What I've had, YouTube videos that, you know, hit millions of views. I'm like, that to me is a feat in itself, right? You know, and still to this day, I feel like I do have to still prove myself in some worlds that I'm in and talk about my views and things like that. So people see me as a quote-unquote real musician because you can't audition for everyone and show them all your skills, you know? Sometimes you just got to be like, yeah, yeah, I came up in the YouTube era. I have a million subscribers on YouTube, you know? I'm proud to say that that shows a lot about what I've done for myself as far as, and anyone knows who's trying to do social media or who has done social media is that consistency to get even a thousand, even to get 50,000, 100,000 listeners or whatever it is, is a lot of work. So, you know, I'm very proud to be part of that OG era of Asian American YouTubers and just YouTubers in general. 
to answer your second question, what inspires me to keep that going is when I am in different worlds. So, you know, I'm pursuing musical theater as well, acting, things like that. When I meet these other actors who are more on the mindset of like waiting for the call, waiting for the email from their agent or their manager, when I'm able to say, hey, why don't we just go make a video right now? You know what I mean? They're like, oh my gosh, you can do that so fast, you know? And it's just like, it's just about setting up. It's even easier now because of TikTok and stuff where you just have the vertical phone. You don't have to necessarily edit your content. But I was in a show in Cambridge at ART, Harvard. And I was there for a couple of months. I was there with some amazing actors who have been on Broadway, things like that. I was also MJ Rodriguez, who's in the show Pose. This was before she blew up. And I remember just jamming with all of them and recording some of it. And they're like, whoa, this is cool. And I just put it out on my social media. They're like, you know, they don't have to vet it. I didn't have to send it to a manager or a label or anything. So that helps inspire me to still keep doing this route. You know, of course, I'd love it if I did have maybe a record label that I could own all my masters and make all my own moves and they could fund everything. But, you know, that hasn't been my reality. And I am cool with it because I'm good at what I do. You know, I think that's a big part of it too, is like believing that what you do it and it's been affirmed by people, people watch it, people listen, people want to listen to your music. So that definitely helps. It's that community support. Yeah. Versus a corporate support. Exactly. And I think anybody who has been to one of my shows or, you know, when they see me meet my fans and stuff, you see how deep the connection is and they'll bring up your music got me through hard times or middle school, high school and all these things. And you're like, that keeps you going too, because it's a community thing. And also a lot of my fans feel like they were part of when no one knew me. I mean, still, you, you can argue that nobody knows really who I am, but when they're like part of this kind of underground club, that becomes a communal experience. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions because I had the opportunity to hire you for our community show back in 2021 at Couple Gardens in San Francisco. And I was able to witness firsthand your humility and the amount of love you show your fans. Like you were literally taking selfies with everyone that asked, you know, I think someone busted out their ukulele and you're sort of jamming with them on the spot. You brought him up on stage. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. I just... That's right. Yeah. That's right. You you just exert so much like Kapwa, I feel like. Yeah. You are the epitome. If Kapwa is a person, it would be you. <laughs> <laughs> that word and what that means, I would prefer that to be written on my grave before musician. You know what I mean? Because I am, and not just at shows and stuff, but like throughout my life, helping lead choir and and church and things like that. Like bringing people together means more to me, you know? And even in my career, if I've introduced people, someone to somebody and they have a better relationship and they end up, you know, working a lot more. Like for me, I've done my part and that feels good to me. Like I do find fulfillment in the togetherness and what couple means, right? Like that to me means more than even just being a musician. It's building bridges. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, now I remember the ukulele thing. So I'm going on tour in September and we're tying in the show, which, you know, I'm keeping behind doors, but I'll give a little bit here is that, you know, at the end of 
the show, I'm just going to come out on an ukulele. It brings me back to my first YouTube videos where it's just that. And yeah, there'll be more crowd interaction and things. like I want people to feel like they're represented on stage as much as I am, you know? So yeah, that's going to be very cool. I do want to mention uh, the ukulele is my son's favorite toy. Oh my God. Of all time. So it's kind of like a full circle moment. So for those that don't know the listeners and even my staff and my production team, don't know this, but I named my son after AJ Raphael. <laughs> How often do you tell this story? It's so funny. I've maybe told it three times, yeah, including to you. So just like a little preface, my husband and I had been trying to conceive for like two years. We thought we couldn't. We thought it was like useless. Something was wrong with us. We were going to start looking into like fertilization, maybe a surrogate. And then I do this event, and AJ Raphael is the headliner. And after the event, AJ, do you want to say, we just like hung out. This hasn't happened in a while, too, because like after shows, usually you're tired and stuff and things like that. But me and my boy, Andrew, who is like a ball of energy, we're like, let's go out with everybody, you know? And we all go to this bar. I hadn't hung out with Pierre in a long time. And we go back in the day. I didn't know him as an adult really, you know, just online and stuff. So getting to drink with him and stuff. And yeah, we were all getting pretty hammered, you know, yeah. like taking shots and, and buying everybody shots. Well, like, it H, was you were buying us shots, so. I was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't um, just. <laughs> Anyways, we were so what a night. Like, hammered and we went back to the hotel and basically we conceived our son that night. So crazy. And the OBGYN, they pinpointed that night as the night of conception, which was 8-8, August 8th, 2021. And 8 is, yeah, that's a lucky number too. It is a lucky number. And so I just thought it would be fitting to name our son after you because we were trying for two years and nothing happened. And you were just like the force, yeah. the bridge, right? We yeah. just needed your energy. I love And that. now his favorite toy is the ukulele. I swear, G-O-D. What a full freaking circle. So he's two years old now. Almost. Almost two. I don't know much about babies, but like, are they obsessed with like certain songs and things like that? And like, they see certain things on TV and they recognize, et cetera. Yeah. Him and his dad, like they jam out every day. Pierre has his own acoustic guitar and baby got the ukulele from my mom who went to Hawaii, like when I was pregnant, brought it back for him. And that's literally the only toy he grabs every day. And whenever someone comes over, he wants to show them. And he he starts to sing, but he doesn't speak yet. So he's just like sort of yell singing. Wild. Well, I can't wait to keep re-meeting AJ, you know, once he starts remembering. And then eventually when he's old enough (laughs) to tell that story. We definitely show him your YouTube videos. And he he loves to watch your performance videos. Cool. That's so funny. What a time. What a night that was. What a night. For you. Yeah, from what I can remember. But yeah, definitely a magical <laughs> night. Yeah, yeah. But I also want to talk about your tour. You know, it's been a decade since your last tour. And yeah. you're kicking it off, the Take Me Back tour, actually next month, like you said. So what are you looking forward to this year? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah, it's been nine years to have 
recently I just finished like putting my set list together and all the ideas for staging and how I'm walking on and things like that. And to develop a show is different from like playing a show at Kapwa Gardens or at a college, right? Where I'll just go in and do my thing, which is amazing as well. But to have the same show every night for however many nights we're doing it, it's going to be a two week run and then two other dates, like a week later and a month later. But to carry that show, it feels like it's a theater thing too, as well, a theatrical experience. So that's what I want to bring to the audience and the people who helped sell it out in a weekend. You know, there's still tickets left for San Diego. The name of the tour, Take Me Back. I want to take people back to those kind of the good old days, the YouTube days. You know, people bring up that time to me a lot where, you know, they remember that they had my stuff downloaded on an iPod that they had to download off YouTube, right? You know, yeah, I caught the last end of like Napster and Kazaa and Morpheus and all those, you know what I mean? So like, it's cool to be part of a specific time on the internet and then to be brought back. I want to take everybody back during those shows. So it's going to be very special. We're starting in Vancouver, then going to Seattle, Sacramento, Berkeley, LA, San Diego. And is there any anxiety you're feeling? Um, no, when I'm doing college shows, literally, I don't even rehearse. I don't even warm up. I'll do it because, yeah, it feels so familiar. You know, I'm like, I feel like a vet. But when it came to this tour, preparing for this tour, mostly what I was anxious about was like finalizing logistics, things like that. Like, do I spend 12 grand more on a tour bus because it's more comfortable my wife is coming on tour this time. It's not like the boys, you know what I'm saying? Like to take a van, piss in a Gatorade bottle. Like literally I've done that. It's a wild with those tours, but that was in my young twenties. You know, I'm like, we're in our thirties now, me and my band anyway. And it's like, Hey, how do we make this great for everyone? Be comfortable, get enough sleep. That stuff was really giving me anxiety, like logistical stuff on like the routing and, you know, driving from, Seattle to Berkeley, if we had done a van, which we'd all have to switch driving, that would have been the shittiest drive because we'd just come off a show. Maybe we'll get to our hotel at like a 4 a.m. or something, you know, things like that. So being an adult on this tour, the last tour I was on was like, was funded by an agency. Yeah, it was a bad deal that we made. They rented out all the venues, but this time we worked with a booking agent who's doing splits and you know, door deals with the venue and things like that, less risk. Thankfully, we sold out, right? So that's not a problem. So I was having anxiety before the tour now. So I'm like, are people going to come? You know, things like that. And that was went away. So then we started dealing with logistics. And then the fun part outside of the anxiety was coming up with a set list and bringing back all these songs and rehearsing them again and things like that. So there's still that ball of anxiousness that I think will always be there. But I'm in a place now where I just want us to be happy, be comfortable. I want my wife to be happy on tour. But also we know what tour entails and like we might not get a shower every day or something like that. So whatever. And a good husband. I'm going to give you like some husband <laughs> points. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because in your 20s, you really can't. It's like in my 20s, Coachella, you know, outside lands, no bathroom, whatever, fine. I'm in my 40s now. And I'm like, no, I need like access to a bathroom Wild. with no line, like stat. 
I feel that, yeah, the whole hygiene thing, I think, is just like, man, how did we go anywhere back in the day not giving a shit about that? All the time YOLO. <laughs> All the time YOLO. But now it's like, you know, I'll carry an extra toothbrush in my fanny pack and stuff like that. You know, like, that's real now. So It went from, like, condoms uh, to toothbrushes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, what's in my pockets today? Sheesh. I love that. I also wanted to ask, you also score films. What was that process like writing music for a film versus just regular songwriting? Oh, man. It's different, but also the way I approach songwriting is like how I would approach like a film score. And I just want to evoke emotion and stuff and not just... There's not one of my songs that is the same four chords throughout. And that's because of like my musical theater upbringing as well and listening to a lot of Disney songs, which no Disney song is four chords. Like I think people may assume it's like an easy kid song. But if you listen to Disney music and Christmas music, or if you try to learn them, there's more theory in those than any pop song written. And I love pop music, by the way. But yeah, approaching it like that, where it's like about a feeling. And it's very cool. Dante Bosco, who officiated my wedding last year, you know, he's been a good friend of mine since 2011. I met him the day that I wrote the song Red Roses, which became my album, which became my Mona Lisa, I guess, in a way. It was like, that's my greatest piece of art in my mind anyway. And that's what most people know me for. So I met Dante that day that I wrote it. We were at a shoot for this project called Filipino Greece. It was a student film for our friend, Jitungi. And he was Danny Zuko and he can't sing. So he was rapping. Some 11 had me a blast. And I was like, what the hell is this? But we, we became really good friends. And, you know, he has roots in the Bay. He's, he's a great guy. So years, years later, he asks me, this is right end of March, 2020. And it was funny because we were talking about getting together. Like, let's go to a studio and do this. But it was a weird time, right? So I had bought an iMac Pro to be able to handle scoring, watching a video, and having a Zoom on. So Dante and his co-producer, Ron, be there while I was like composing some of this stuff and I'm showing them my takes and I was very honored to be asked to do something because that was Dante's directorial debut yeah like debut like debut his film and it was you know that's the old school we loved him (laughs) I remember buying that film in Costco so wild I was there yeah (laughs) at the premiere at the premiere I I remember (laughs) Century Daily City yeah yeah. (laughs) crazy yeah he talks about that all the time and the Bosco brothers, too. They really remember that press tour, which is very cool. But yeah, so this was kind of like, you know, not a direct sequel, but it's coming out of that. All the Bosco brothers were in it. So one of my favorite things about scoring that film is that there are four brothers who are featured in that film. And it's on Hulu, I think still now. But each of the brothers had their own kind of vignettes and their own stories. And I got to compose different almost theme songs for them, for each one, which is a very cool thing that I've always wanted to do. And the way that I approached it is literally by watching it playing something on the piano or a guitar. 
while doing it. And I don't know if that's how most people do it. And you say, you know, I, I compose. Like, I feel like that's a strong word because I think a lot of composers will transcribe everything they're doing. And I'm not a great transcriber. But again, it was just about putting the music out there, letting them have it to help fill in because they also had a really great soundtrack that they used songs for, like Ruby Ibarra's on that, you know. So my job was just to kind of fill in the gaps and set the tone for certain scenes, which I thought I did well. I've done a couple of shorts for like Wong Fu Productions, you know, with music like that. So it's not one of my main things at all, but it's something that I enjoy doing and I'm very proud of. And I don't think people really realize the importance of music film. It, like you said, it sets the tone and the emotional like capacity for folks to really resonate with a scene or a character. And music drives that, not just the acting and the dialogue. But if you watch yeah, anything absolutely. without music, it's so flat. Yeah, it's flat or it's like yes. a horror movie. You know what I mean? Which that is a totally different art. That's like a sound okay. effects and things like that. So yeah, I appreciate what film scorers and composers do a lot more after, you know, having done my first full length film. And I think, yeah, kind of to add to what you're saying is that a good film too, you don't necessarily remember the music. You remember like how it made you feel, you know, and I think that's a really great way to do it. Speaking of feeling and that ability to help your audience and the listener sort of evoke feeling, but also healing. Uh, I want to know how music, maybe on a personal level, has been a healing force in your life and how you utilize it to help heal others. Yeah, I love that question. I mean, I think at its core, music it just in general is so universal that you can have it relate to you in any situation you're in, you know. When you listen to a Taylor Swift album, you know, me as a man, I don't, you know, John Mayer is not my ex, and even though she's singing about it, but it still makes me feel some type of way, you know, and that, that's what I love about music is that it's for everybody. And so when I am able to make something that can help heal somebody, that in turn also helps heal me because when I write these songs about like breakups and things like that, you know, as much as I want to say I wrote that song and I put it in the universe and now I'm healed, that's not the case necessarily. But then when you hear that people have been healing to my music, that helps you be like, that's the full circle of what I just did to help heal them. And then it comes back my way. A couple of songs that I know have helped a lot of people is one of my songs called Without You and then mess we've made that I wrote with Tori Kelly, who I was literally going through a breakup during that time. And as me and Tori were writing about it, you know, we would discuss how the breakup made me feel. And she hadn't gone through a breakup at that time. She was so young. She was like 17. So me just even talking about what that is like was healing for me. So songwriting in general, that has helped heal me in certain ways. And then the overarching healing is that because my dad was a musician and because he also used music as a tool to, you know, bring healing to people through church and, you know, Disney music to make people feel happy and things like that. 
and he was in a cover band for the last years of his life. So, you know, having people dance to music that you're making and that you're playing for me to also be a musician just in general has helped with the healing of my dad's passing and makes me feel even more connected. And my sisters would probably feel the same way. I know they do, you know, and my littlest sister, Justine, she was only six months when he died. So her only actual connection is through music, you know, and through me and my sister who are like a year and a half apart as well. But my other little sister, Jasmine, who is a year and a half younger than me, she's on Broadway right now. So having the music be in our family, it's a big, heavy, happy thing for us. My auntie Vicky, who I brought up earlier in the beginning of the conversation, she was in my dad's choir. She had a beautiful voice as well. So anytime we think about music, we think about our family and that has just made our lives more full and how to deal with tragedy. It gives an extra layer of healing. That's so dope. I've never been like musically inclined. I, I Like my dad, I don't have that gene. <laughs> my, my dad said I don't have that gene, but my son definitely has it. My husband has it. My father was also a musician. He played guitar, flute, piano. Cool. And then my uncle, Pat Salaver, who I'm writing my feature about, he was a trombone player. As a kid, he was in the Rose Bowl Parade, you know. And then my grandfather was a drummer for the dance halls back in the 1940s and 30s. Wow. We don't realize how big music is, especially in our lineage as Filipino-Americans. But it definitely plays a huge role in a lot of Filipino-American lives. Oh, and yeah. it's nice to finally, like, in this generation, acknowledge that and also understand, like, it's not just this hobby, you know? It's, it's definitely a healing power that connects us. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, the Philippines in general has such a Western influence, that's why karaoke is so huge because they love listening to pop music from America, you know, and that's how like, you know, a lot of our parents, like my mom specifically learned English, you know, like listening to a lot of the Beatles and, and things like that. So yeah, music is definitely embedded and American music specifically into the Filipino culture. You know, everybody loves, you know, Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson and all these standards from here. And Martin Rivera, Gary Valenciano, like the people in the Philippines, they grew up singing all those songs and helping bringing that to the Philippines and stuff. So yeah, music is just, it's such a, a powerful thing, whether you do it for a living or not. And I imagine that you probably can sing, honestly, and maybe you were just discouraged. You know what I mean? <laughs> As a kid. Maybe I just need some lessons. <laughs> maybe it Maybe more musical theater-ish singing. Sure, Not sure. like No, but also acoustic. being pressured to sing and, you know, to do samples and stuff, right? That's, it gets a little scary, so it can be discouraging. But actually next week, I'm doing this thing. I was inspired by TikTok and inspired by what I did when I was younger. We're doing a one-day choir. So next Thursday, I'm inviting some friends. Like, they don't even have to have any kind of, like, choir experience, like, just want them to come. I'm going to teach them parts. We're going to sing a song together, like film nice. it and then call it a day. No commitment. You know, you don't have to be part of this choir, you know, because I think there is 
again, a communal experience about singing together, yeah. you know, and like not singing solo and having several people do the same part as you and you guys are feeling together. So yeah, if you're ever in town for one of those, this is going to be my first one next week. We'll see. I feel like Pierre is definitely the better singer. Yeah, <laughs> no, but, but again, I want to encourage people like there's no auditioning or anything like it's that's what I feel like music should be. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. some, you know, a thing that you do for money or et cetera. Yeah, you know, I feel. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be perfect. I think. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I also wanted to ask this question. Speaking of like incorporating others into your music you beautifully have incorporated your wife Alyssa shout out to Alyssa Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. both have become viral sensations I think I remember during the pandemic you guys were on a Times Square ad for for is it Amazon Music Amazon Music yeah that was very cool to be on a billboard and stuff together it's cool to be with and married to someone who loves performing as well and music is a big part of Alyssa's life just her whole life you know and she worked at Disneyland for a long time as Mulan singing the song Reflection you know so really grew up loving Lea Salonga now we're friends with her because of music and things like that it has been very cool but yeah to be able to make music with my wife and we were making actually a lot more music before we were married because we were less busy with you know adulty things and we have a house now and it's just it gets so busy. But before that, yes, we were making a lot of videos in our office, singing together. And then we brought it to our wedding where we sang like a Disney parody, thanking everybody in our wedding, which is very cool. So I'm, yeah, I feel super blessed to have somebody who loves music just as much as I do. She knows how much music means to me. And I think eventually, you know, the goal, one of the big goals is that me and her, or like in a Disney movie or something, you know, or writing music together for Disney. You know, there's a duo, Bobby and Kirsten Lopez, who wrote Frozen. They wrote Coco. Yes. Right. You know, and he's Filipino, Bobby. Bobby is one of the only people in the world that has an ego. Yeah, exactly. Emmy, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Absolutely. He's one of the handful of people and he's a half Filipino and he's, yeah. It, those guys are inspiration to us because I think eventually we want to make an impact like that. Like who doesn't remember Let It Go after they just seen Frozen once? So yeah, but she's coming on tour with me. We're going to get to perform together and it's just, yeah, it's going to be so fun. And, and this is just the beginning, even though we've been together or it's going to be seven years now. But yeah, it's... Uh, congratulations. It's, thank you. Thank you so much. Funny story. I actually met Bobby's mom oh. on the streets of New York randomly. I was filming like a short film or something <laughs> and she stopped me and was like, what is this for? And I said, oh, it's just a short film I'm creating for YouTube. And she goes, oh, my son's in the industry. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just thinking, oh, this thing that. <laughs> That's so funny. And I go, oh, who's your son? And she goes, Bobby Lopez. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? It was like Frozen had just come out. Wow. That's but so shout cool. Out to Bobby's mom. She I think she actually passed away like oh, a couple years ago. Yeah. yeah. So rest in peace. Absolutely. But she was the sweetest, sweetest lady. And she was like, I'm gonna tell Bobby to follow you. I love so she's the Filipino one, the mom. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they're all 
the same in the best way where they, you know, they're humble at the same time, but then absolutely proud of and will brag about their kid. But like, you know, the humility comes from, oh, yeah, he's in the industry. It's Bobby Lopez. It's like one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Exactly. So cool. Okay, I know like we can go on and on and on again. I feel like I'm just talking to like a cousin or a homie right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But I just have a couple more questions. Yeah, for sure. I know you talked in previous interviews about a dream project being like you said writing for Disney or musical theater. Do you have any other big dream projects that you want to be involved in or manifest? Sure. I mean, I just talked to somebody about this where it's like everything you're doing, what does that lead up to? You know, and I always think about how even as consistent as I am with like my YouTube videos and what I've been doing, I do want to have that one project that like could change the trajectory of opportunities that I have or like something like huge financially that would have me worry less about paying mortgage in a couple months, right? Like, cause you know, that freelance life is like, we have good money for a little bit and then sometimes we don't and we start worrying and but then it comes because you know god always provides right that kind of thing but sometimes you just you feel so down on yourself so that big project that could be a life-changing amount of money slash or opportunity would be something like yes booking a movie like a disney movie like a big studio film where you either originate a voice or write a song for writing a song for like a Disneyland fireworks show. That's one dream that we have together. Like that'd be cool to not even have to write it, but maybe we could be the featured voices on it. That could be very cool. And then uh, Broadway is very much on my mind, not just because my sister's on it. That is definitely a helping force, but I was just in New York for a final callback for the musical Chicago. And I had been very close for Hamilton in the past and Wicked on Broadway. But being that close just in my recent, in the recent last couple months, it's just brought that dream back again. And like, it's so in reach, you know, it just kind of is, even for me as like someone who's a quote unquote successful musician, I feel like you know, there's a lot of like luck and timing involved in, and that's every, I think that's everything. It's like, yes, it's hard work, but you just got to be ready when the lightning strikes. And so I think of Broadway in that way a lot where it's like, if I have that opportunity to do this, this tape for the show, I'm going to kill it. And then thankfully I was brought out to New York to do that. And I'm looking around like at these theaters, I'm like, man, I would love to do this for, you know, an extended amount of time or, or even a short period of time. And to be able to say that I was on Broadway would be really a cool thing for me to bring to my family name again, because my sister's now on Broadway. And that's also my littlest sister's dreams too. So, I mean, imagine if all three Raphael siblings were on Broadway at some point in their life, that would make us very proud. Well, I'm just going to float this idea, but what if you just write your own Broadway musical yeah, I know, and then I know. cast your entire family right. and well, Alyssa? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. It's That's been the thing. That's been the, the thing for me as someone who creates all the time. I have been told, like, why don't you write your own musical? And I've written a screenplay based on my album, 
that I could have either turned into a musical right now. It's like screenplay for a film. And I think about this all the time where it's like, and you know how much work it is to put on even just a short film, let alone a feature length film, let alone a musical that's two hours and 30 minutes. So I think about these things and I'm like, man, how cool would it be as someone who creates to be able to take a break and like be in a Hamilton for like a year and not have to think about creating something. And I don't know, in my mind, again, the journey is, it varies with everybody. It's not a certain template it has to be, but it's like, I would love to be in a Broadway show to just know what that feeling is. And then I'll start working on writing. But again, that didn't happen for someone like Lin-Manuel, you know, like he's been writing in Hamilton for like 10 years, you know, and then cast himself in it. And, you know, now he's doing whatever he wants. So it can be either or, or whatever way. But sometimes I see writing a musical as like a super huge, unreachable project, you know. But again, as you know, all it takes is just like executing that script, doing that, and then it's like, oh shit, you did it. On to the next one. And then you do the next project. So yeah, I struggle with that balance a lot. Well, what if someone wrote like the storyline and produced sure, the it? Asked you to write the music, would you be open to that? Yeah, I think if the partnership was right and, you know, I think a lot of the really successful musicals have these collaborators, you know, like Alan Menken and Steven Schwartz mm-hmm. together, you know, Pasek and Paul who did Greatest Showman who now have done Dear Evan Hansen and their partners for many, many things. Yeah, I think that could come along as well. But yeah, I'm open to it for sure. Okay, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> note to self (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely oh my gosh i would totally support you if you're in chicago or hamilton or any of the big broadway we're gonna help manifest that for you absolutely the last uh person i interviewed was chef francis of trust bay and one of the biggest takeaways i had from that interview was your timing is everything and you just have to be ready with your skills and your craft whatever that may be and you know when the timing is right, you're there. You're ready. Just like you said, when lightning strikes, you're just ready. Yeah. And the same thing happened with Chef Francis. They've just been working on their knife skills and, and Chef practicing. Francis from New York? Yeah, from oh, New York. Oh, sick, sick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We ate at one of their restaurants back in the day, Ugh. like six, seven years ago. Very special chef, for sure. We love Chef Francis. Shout out to Chef Francis. Yes. This is going to be my last question, because I know you're a busy person and you got to go. But what are you currently geeking over? And it can be everything. It can't, you know, you can deviate from music, because I know we were talking about music yes, the whole time. I always talk about music. Uh, no, I have a love for Funko Pops in the last couple of years, and I have over 200, and half of them are like, grails which we call in the Funko community you know like the ones that are resale over like a hundred dollars you know so it's become kind of like a dangerous habit for me to keep wanting like I'm in Facebook groups and shit you know I'm like trading with people and because I also sometimes get PR packages and stuff with Funkos in exchange for posts and story posts like that you know I've traded some exclusive ones for like somebody's one that they paid like $400 for, you know? So like, like my collection is kind of crazy and 
it stresses Alyssa out a little bit because they're all in boxes, right? It's not a very pleasant collection to have. So everything is in the garage right now until I um, truly organize it. And actually getting into this hobby, I've noticed how much in the beginning I was just like buying whatever and not focusing my collection. I think anyone with a collection, you know, probably knows that, A, it looks nicer when you have it up, but then also you're not spending like random money on these little collections. Like I have like one Grey's Anatomy pop because I love the show Grey's Anatomy, but like I'm not going to collect like, you know, all 10 of them. Like I focus my collection now on Marvel, specific Marvel, Disney, and I have like all the Batman pops. So yeah, that's that's what I've been geeking on lately. It's it's a problem. How many do you have? Let me just look on my app because I want to tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Exactly. Uh, Is there a Funko app? There's a Funko app and you scan all the barcodes and it goes into your collection. So on the app, maybe add 30 because I haven't scanned a lot of them in. I have 270 on the app. Wow. I have some, I mean, people on Facebook groups, they have, you know, a thousand maybe. But basically uh, 300. You have like Yeah, basically 300. 300. My highest priced one, at least resale, is a $460 pop, which these are, wow. these are $12. You know what I'm saying? These are $12 pops. Which one is the $400 60 Funko It pop? is this Jolly Roger, but it's an exclusive to Comic Con. It's the, from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> he's the he's one of the pirates from pirates of the caribbean the ride that is so rant that's not what i would have guessed it was going to be 400 this is one of them too which is a kobe bryant one for 340 oh, okay. that makes more sense that makes sense. that makes sense and then my second highest one is 390 dollars, and since <laughs> so funny it's literally toucan sam fruit loops uh- so random yeah uh, uh, you know Alyssa at first like for my birthday when I first got obsessed with Funko Pop she got me this whole like punch board where I would punch cups and then I'd match to a thing and so she was excited but then when it became overwhelming she's like AJ what are you gonna do with all this shit spoken like a real wife yes no but also oh my god Ruby's husband is also obsessed with Fungo Pops. Like, he's a super geek. Ruby is a geek herself as well about a lot of stuff. She's a nerd. But her husband is really into it, too. We message all the time, <laughs> like, about, hey, did you get that Funko Pop release? You know, so it's it's not good. Have you been to the headquarters up in Washington? In Washington, no. But I've been to the L.A. store, which is similar. You but can yeah. make your own Funko. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But when I tour up in Seattle... We're going to visit. The- you have to go. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to go. It's pretty dope. I, I went my last Seattle trip. It's probably oh, like 45 minutes north of Seattle. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Oh, okay. It's so we'll, we'll catch it on the way down for Vancouver then. Yes. Yes. Oh, my Make God. Make it a yeah. stop. Yeah. That's going to be very cool. I love that. I love that. Yeah. 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 But I think I do like when people think of me for like I put a lot of my personality and my personal life out online. You know, to a fault maybe, but people know that I love the Lakers. They know I have Batman tattoos and they know now that I am a Funko Pop enthusiast. So anytime I love getting messages from fans 
and family members and friends and they see a certain pop or something they're like oh thought of you you know have you been to this store you know it gives it more than just like oh i saw a keyboard the other day and i thought of you you know what i mean like it's it's very cool to have have that be part of my personality as well so then the holy grail will, will be them creating an aj Raphael, like Funko actual funko yeah like funko, a real yeah. one that people can buy yeah yeah so i uh i made one based on my red roses and i had someone like paint it and we auctioned it off to a fan for charity which was very cool funko has done a few filipino oh. you know like joe koi bella porch the ceo of funko i don't know if he's a ceo but He's one of the founders of Funko Pops. His name is Fudmaker Mike, something like that. But he loves Filipinos. Like he has a Filipino wife. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, so he's... We're not going to touch that. Yeah, let's not, let's yeah. not get into that. Let's not unpack that. Yeah, no, let's not unpack that. But, you know, he was... one of The one time I met him, because I told him I had Jollibee Pops and... You know, that's also so random, right? To have like Jollibee yeah. pops and Mickey, they have Mickey Mouse in a barong, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I have that pop too. And he was just like, AJ, everything I do is for Filipinos. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. We need them to sponsor your tour then. I know. We've been, we've been in talks. Your next tour, next tour. Yeah. Next tour for sure. But we've talked about it. And honestly, the back door is, and I don't know if this, is that this is confidential, but you have to like order like I don't know if it's like a hundred thousand of oh. what you know and kind of pay for all that. That's like a different kind of way to get your Funko made. But yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have that kind of money to put down. Yeah, that's a lot of. But I think you're, I think Alyssa would have been like, I draw the line at hundred thousand. Yeah, AJ Raphael Funko. Yeah, inventory that I have to sell for the rest of my life? God, no. So, yeah. All right, we're going to get you on a musical first, yep. and then we're going to we're gonna manifest that yeah, yeah, without yeah. having to buy the inventory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a, a character or something. You <laughs> yeah, know exactly. what I mean? So, yeah. AJ, we are so appreciative of you and your time and, of course, your energy. Again, you're one of my favorite YouTube stars. Thank and you. That's not because my husband is friends with you yeah. since you're a kid. Because you are just, you emit love in Kapala. And we just wish the best for you on tour. We're so sad it's all sold out. All of my, like, coworkers are like, I want to go. I was like, sorry, it's sold out. I can't I do know. anything about we had, it. We had no foresight on what that was. We would have booked or left more room in the routing so we could do like two nights in Berkeley, you know, two yeah. nights in Seattle and things like that. But next time we know, but also I'm just very, very happy that people still want to come to see me play. People love you. We love you, AJ. Yeah, so. love you too, Nicole, and uh, send my <laughs> love to Pierre and little AJ, Pierre's family. So very cool to have that connection with you, and I'm glad that it brought us back, you know, together, which is very cool. Well, I'm also glad you helped us conceive our son. So you know, <laughs> to you, our, uh, literally our firstborn son, we must give to you, AJ. <laughs> oh my God! Whenever, whenever you need him for anything on tour, or <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
background ukulele. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That would be so fun. Honestly, yeah. Can't, can't wait to meet him when he has more of an understanding of of the yeah. world. That's going to be so We're going to cool. train him just for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, AJ. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. The idea that music can build bridges is not a new one, but it is one that continues to be immensely relevant, perhaps even more so today. In a world often divided by differences, AJ's music serves as a powerful force that transcends boundaries, connecting communities, and emphasizing the concept of kapwa. Kapwa, a Filipino concept, underscores the interconnectedness of all humanity. And AJ's music not only entertains, but it educates, enlightens, and even empowers. He reminds us that we have the capacity to transcend our differences, to build bridges of understanding, and to embrace the concept of kapwa in our own lives. I feel like his intention is a reminder that artists can be catalysts for change, using their talents to foster unity, empathy, and a greater sense of shared humanity. And in this way, AJ's work is not only inspiring, but also a testament to the enduring power of music to shape our world for the better. You can find AJ on Instagram at AJRaphael and visit his website at AJRaphaelMusic.com. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. You can follow me on Instagram at Kindred Kapwa. The podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belay Creative and is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at belaycreative.org. <laughs>